again to Podiatry Today podcasts, where we bring you the latest in foot and ankle medicine and surgery from leaders in the field. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, Assistant Editorial Director for Podiatry Today. In this installment, we're talking about first MTPJ salvage surgery with Dr. Joshua Sabag and Dr. Zachary Cavins, specifically diving into the procedure decision-making process, imaging, comorbidities, and fixation options. Both doctors are fellows of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons and practice in the state of Florida. Welcome and thank you so much for being with us today. So I think the first question we'd like to start out with today is for both of you to describe for us in your practices, what's the typical patient that you see coming in for a first MTPJ revision? And how does that contrast from the patients that are coming in for primary procedures? You know, so for me, the demographic most commonly coming in are going to be the geriatric folks, either with uh, rigid ovalgus, you know, someone who was treated with an arthritic bunion and some sort of hemi or something where there was a, a joint, semi-joint sparing or joint sparing procedure or a completely failed implant. I would kind of echo um, a lot of those similarities, um, especially when it comes to, you know, to the revisions. The other thing that I would see with these uh, patients are previous, you know, bunionectomies or, or, or even incorrect bunionectomy procedures where there was under correction or there was even a malalignment, you know, secondary to correction. Now we're seeing these patients three to five years out and they're still having complications at that joint. But definitely in terms of, you know, previously joint sparing other procedures, age ranges can literally be anything. I would say most commonly 65 to mid 70s not really seeing too much younger than that from a, from a revision uh, salvage standpoint. When you are coming up with your surgical plan for these revision patients, how aggressive are you? For, for me, I'm definitely a fan of, of arthrodesis as a whole. I think we have a lot of data that supports arthrodesis. And, and honestly, you know, as the, for me, it's really the gold standard and continues to kind of be so. Uh, I'm sure that in other providers' hands, you know, there's an option for arthroplasty. But when you look at the data, especially when you start looking at some of the, the literature that's out there on how patients tolerate these procedures postoperatively um, and how well they honestly do, usually I'm, I'm able to kind of have these conversations with patients where I'm talking about arthrodesis. Um, I can't say that I have never performed arthroplasty, but I would say the majority of time these patients are coming to me for, especially when it comes to revision, they're, they're looking for a solution. They're not looking for another possibility. They're looking for something that's going to get them out of pain. For me, I, I think I'm able to do that most successfully and most consistently with arthrodesis. Uh, Dr. Sabag, is there anything you would like to add to that? For me, it's not really much of a discussion. It would have to be a real uh, unique scenario where maybe there were multiple fusions distal or proximal to the revision site for me to really entertain something that would be an arthroplasty or sort of an arthroplasty. Nine times out of 10, probably more. I'm looking for a predictable, durable, lifelong lasting option, and that's going to be a fusion. And that's been borne out in the literature pretty well now. If you read and you, and you see what, what works long term, these folks are coming in. It's by definition a second or maybe even a third option. The goal to be able to give them something that you know is going to be durable long term, I think is logical for me. So I'm always leaning towards that. Additionally, if I'm dealing with a mid 70s year old person who's had surgery on the first ray once or twice or maybe more, I have to expect the soft tissues to be a concern, or at least with some evidence of scarring. And if I perform a fusion, I know that I can stabilize the soft tissue. 
So I'm also treating that soft tissue with a, with a fusion. And that to me is just more of a comfortable procedure versus encouraging motion around that scar site. Now, what do you feel about advanced imaging? Do you ever order, say, an MRI for these patients preoperatively? Or is there any benefit to that in your assessment? Definitely. I think for one, if it's a revision, you could argue there's medical legal reasons to just really make sure you're kind of a covering, covering yourself, get all the information you can. Advanced imaging has come a long way between weight-bearing CTs and thin cut MRIs and these multiple Tesla models that allow, you know, allow us to just get good, good data with MRI and hardware. Obviously there's going to be scatter and there's loss of definition, but I, I do think a weight bearing CT or even a non-weight bearing CT gives us great information. If I'm going to be dealing with a revision, I have to expect cystic change or bone loss somewhere. Maybe it says moidal damage that was missed on the primary, which probably should have been treated with a fusion definitively then. So for me, it just helps in, in, in lots of different ways, especially on that coronal cut, you know, looking kind of that as a, as a motion sesamoid axial, it's a lot better than a, a simple weight bearing view. When it comes to any, re, any revision, I want to know what else is kind of going on within that bone, that surrounding structure and the, where we seen the cystic changes. A lot of times if they're, it's harder previous in place, or if you're doing say even a revision MTP fusion you know, the, those even definitely can come up, you know, you don't always get the best visualization of that surrounding bone. And with CT scans and thin cut CTs, we're definitely able to kind of see that bone structure so much better. So for me, it's almost a, a given if you're coming in and we're talking about revision, then we are for sure pursuing uh, advanced imaging. Were there ever any findings on that advanced imaging? You mentioned the sesamoid findings, perhaps that really surprised you that had a significant impact on your uh, operative planning? The sesamoids are definitely important to look at. And also when it comes to structural grafting, you know, sometimes we're looking at bone loss and you're not always seeing that, especially in those cases of those revision MTP fusions where we're not always seeing that bone very clearly. Um, and so you're going to see sometimes some bone loss, especially on whether it's the proximal phalanx base or on that first metatarsal head, that's not always predictable with plain film radiograph. So having that CT definitely will kind of let you know what you're kind of getting yourself into. Um, you, you know, revisions are never really predictable. So we try to do as much as we can up front. It does change sometimes my plans if we are talking about doing the structural allograft or structural autograft um, or any at all, you know, or, or we're just going to try to put bone back together. Um, depending on the level of shortening, but having that information up front, especially if there's a lot of cystic changes and kind of being prepared for additional bone loss, I think it's extremely important. Yeah, I would just say yes, you know, for sure. Uh, there's, there's benefit to it. The patients appreciate it. It gives me more information. So yes. Definitely. Well, speaking of more information and, and needing to take certain things into consideration, in these patients that need revisions, you mentioned some of them are of advanced age, but they probably are also dealing with some other comorbidities. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how this might affect your preoperative planning, specifically, say, a patient who smokes or who has diabetes or perhaps neuropathy? If it's a neuropathic patient, this is something where they're not a candidate for an arthroplasty. So again, leaning towards fusion, similar to how we would treat a total ankle. You know, you might, might be a candidate until you don't feel well. And if you're insensate, we lean towards fusion. I would kind of go with the same logic here. So for a neuropathic patient, they really are chosen by definition to, to get a fusion. And in terms of counseling a patient, I, it's easier to counsel them on smoking cessation protocols and stuff like that. And this is relatively elective. So, you know, we do have the power as the surgeon to say no. And for a patient that has, you know, poor peripheral fusion or, or some sort of 
inherent uh, biologic concerns that I can't control, I probably would lean towards, you know, a, a first ray extension or, or some sort of non-operative thing. If it's truly a symptomatic non-union or malunion or something that I, I genuinely believe I can't correct with an orthotic, I would have to counsel the patient. I'm not super eager to operate on elective uh, surgeries on, on smokers though. So, you know, I, I would totally refuse a hindfoot surgery. Um, the first MTP has fairly predictable fusion rates. So I feel okay to do that, but I would probably go ahead and get a, a vascular evaluation if there was any concern about that. How long do you make them stop smoking for? I've been asked this and talked to other people and we all give different answers and I'm not sure it even matters. So I would more rest my hat on having a vascular surgeon evaluate them and document ABIs, TVIs, things that are going to give me information on their ability to perfuse the limb versus a timeline, which may be totally subjective. So I don't really have a number, I guess. I think we all have a subjective or we just going to pick, but how it actually matters, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there behind you in terms of patients with neuropathy. You know, if you can't feel you where you are in space, then, you know, usually we're seeing those patients not necessarily due to an issue at the joint. Usually there's a secondary, whether it's an ulceration, you know, or just a secondary infection sometimes will happen from, you know, increased pressure or they're, or they're pre-ulcerative or they're callousing there. And that's just sometimes just secondary to that neuropathy. They can't feel to offload, right? So it's malposition from previous surgery plus in combination with neuropathy. So for me, that's an automatic fusion. You know, it doesn't really matter what, the, what shoes they're wearing. They need to be more educated on what that disease process looks like for them and what's going to be the most important thing for them long-term success-wise and, you know, trying to keep them with all their toes, you know, for the rest of their life. So for me, neuropathy, um, especially if it's subsequent to diabetes, that's an, almost an automatic fusion. You know, the diabetes numbers, when I first graduated, then the, that A1C number uh, used to be 8%. Um, and we've kind of seen that number start to drop down uh, lower and lower now. So I think the most recently we're talking about is somewhere they like that to be around 7% now. I, I do my best to educate patients on those risks and concerns and really try to work with endocrine to make sure we're getting them as optimized as possible. Uh, and definitely on those, on my diabetic patients as well, they're, they're getting, you know, prevascular workup and making sure you know, we have as much blood flow going to that area as possible, especially in these revision patients, you know, as we're going back into the bone and taking more bone and even more important, if we're going to start grafting and doing things like that as well. At least in my area, it seems I'm personally not treating as many diabetics as I thought I might, but a ton of my patients are on biologics for, you know, all sorts of disease modifying anti-rheumatic things or patients with kind of loose diagnoses of scleroderma and just these like unbelievable autoimmune conditions, when I discuss kind of the multidisciplinary approach with the, with the rheumatologist or with someone else, the more and more I talk to them, they're, they're telling me that we're actually treating them. I used to take a drug holiday. You know, we would take a holiday between the, the DMARDs and, and now we're kind of just riding it out. And I, I can't say, at least anecdotally, that I'm seeing a huge difference. So I've, I've actually switched to doing that. That's super interesting because I think those, those medications have really blown up and awareness of those conditions has really increased too. So it makes sense that your patient population is, is representing that more as well, but I'm not aware of any, any studies specifically that, that talk about that. Dr. Cavins, have you had any experience there? No, I mean, I think a lot of it also depends on the rheumatologist kind of in your area. 
who I'm talking to now, they, I'm still seeing them with the recommendation of a holiday. Tapping on a medical legal standpoint, it's kind of the same thing. You know, you, I don't want to sit here and say, well, go, I need you to see all these different specialists because I tell them, you know, you need to go get cleared by your rheumatologist. You got to get cleared by your, whoever else. And you list your 19 doctors that they have to see. Um, and then, you know, they come in and they go, well, we're going to stop. We're not going to, we're going to stop their DMARs. And they go, well, you really don't need to do that. You know, you're probably okay with some of these advanced biologics to stop that based on well, what I'm, doing, I'm having them stop prednisone and steroids, but I'm not having them stop Humira. That's, that's what, you know, things like that. So these the DMARs themselves, Sure. The biologics themselves they're they're continuing yep. the steroids you know the the things that have clear yeah. soft tissue yeah. concerns or healing right. concerns that are more i think identifiable and tr- like legitimately a concern i'm having them stop those and they seem to be okay with it and the rheumatologist seems to be okay with it but i'm not i'm not requesting and the rheumatologist isn't encouraging demard cessation from my i just i'm hopeful that they just continue to document that way for you that's all Obviously, from a steroid standpoint like that, I mean, we talk about from a skin and, you know, chronic steroid use and what are that, the hostility of the skin and just everything else that kind of goes along from a healing standpoint. And, you know, you need inflammation to, you know, from a healing perspective. So I don't disagree with you uh, at all. It's just, an, I'll tell you, I, I've seen the documentation come through for, for a request and my, my guys up here still having them, you know, have their holiday. Patients ask me, what do you think I should do? And I go, I think you should listen to the guy that you see. I don't want to be the one that says, you know, hey, go ahead and keep on your Humira. And then all of a sudden we don't. And, you know, there's obviously a secondary issue. And, you know, the rheumatologist is going, well, I told him to stop. But Kevin said to keep him rolling. And now we're staring at exposed plate or something. You know, who knows? Well, hopefully we're not staring at exposed plates, but we all have our preferred methods of fixation for first MTP arthrodesis. And I was curious if both of you could share how you like to approach the fixation aspect. Nine times out of 10, it's a, it's a dorsal plate with a, with an interfrag or a crossing screw underneath. Um, I have fixated other ways as well, but I would say more routinely, it is a interfrag or, you know, compression style screw with a, with a dorsal plate to help neutralize some of those forces. I, I would say that it depends on the size of the void. So if I'm dealing with a revision and there was some sort of eccentric reaming or something that was required in order for me to correct deformity, and then maybe an allograft plug or an autogenous you know, piece of bone, I'd probably have to f- measure it and then make a determination if I could bridge it appropriately. But uh, what I have been doing for these that works pretty well actually is more of a biplanar approach where I can get multiple points of fixation dorsally and medially, almost always it's, it's that, that construct, similar to how we're seeing a lot of literature support fusion in the TMT. And, and that seems to work well and also avoid the need for a, a thick plate in an area of you know, concerning soft tissues. Both of our thought leading surgeons today have more to say about revision first MTP surgery, and we'll continue our discussion in our next episode. Thanks to both of them for joining us and to the listeners for tuning in. Be sure to explore previous podcast topics at podiatrytoday.com and your favorite podcast platforms.